I hate being surprisingly unprepared. Don't you? Don't you hate being surprisingly unprepared? I can remember a time in college when uh, I showed up for a class and I had missed about two weeks of classes. Now, if you're in college, I don't re- recommend this. Uh, this is back before I was a Christian and before I knew how to, you know, use my brain. And uh, I had went a couple of weeks and I'd probably missed four or five classes. And so I show up and sure enough, it's test day. And the teacher starts handing out the test, and I'm like, oh, no. I mean, I had not studied at all. I had not prepared at all. And I get the test, and I remember looking at it and just kind of vaguely recognizing the information on the test. And I, I basically just kind of said, you know what, uh, give me an F on this one. I'm, I'm, I'm going to go grab some lunch. I mean, I'm going to leave, right? I hate that sinking feeling when you are surprisingly unprepared. Maybe you've had this experience at work before, right? Maybe you've shown up on a Monday morning and uh, you showed up in the office and you've been there for a few minutes and you see your boss and he says to you, hey, by the way, I'm really looking forward to that presentation this morning. I'll see you in five minutes. And you're like, what? What presentation? Oh, no, I didn't. I, didn't, I forgot all about it. I'm not prepared. I'm surprised at that horrible feeling. Some of us, probably all of us, have experienced a time when uh, a family member or a close friend has kind of sent a text or sent a phone call or maybe they just show up at your door and knock and they come unexpected and they drop in and you're like, oh no, the house is a mess. And like, you're still in your PJs. And you're, you're just surprisingly unprepared for that moment. I'm concerned that there are a lot of Christians who are going to be surprisingly unprepared for the moment they stand before Jesus. And really, that's the motivation One of the motivations behind the series that we're in. We're in a series called Profile. Today's week two. And my name is Kevin Russell, and I'm the groups and disciple-making pastor here at Genesis Church. And if I had one message to give, if I had one message to give for the rest of my life, it might be this message. I'm passionate about this message, and I'm convinced that the church, not only in America, but our church, you and I, you and myself, need to hear this message. If we begin with the end in mind, if we begin with the end that one day we're all going to stand before Jesus, if we begin with that moment in mind, what kind of lives should we be living today? What should we give our attention to? What kind of disciples should we be? What kind of disciple did Jesus have in mind when he said to go make them in Matthew chapter 28? And there's any number of passages and ways to answer this question at Genesis Church. We're turning to John chapter 15 and specifically verse 8. Let's look at this passage together. I'd love for us to read this together out loud. If you would, join me. Let's read this together out loud. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. In this one statement, Jesus uses three phrases. And we believe that these three phrases also give us insight into three essential qualities of a growing and a mature disciple. The word profile can be defined as an outline view of someone or a brief description. And so we've come up with an outline or a profile, if you will, of a mature disciple. And this is it. We want to be disciples. We want to make disciples who follow Jesus, who seek to glorify God and who grow in some fundamental areas, four fundamental areas uh, described by the four I words there, identity, intimacy, integrity, and influence. We want to see our church family be this kind of disciple and make this kind of disciple. We think that this outline can be a really helpful tool for us as a church. We think it can be a roadmap of sorts, a blueprint, if you will. We think this could be a dashboard, an evaluation tool. This outline, this profile could be a growth plan or a a prayer guide. You could pray these qualities for yourself and for others. 
I think this profile could be a parenting guide. If you've ever wondered what you're supposed to be teaching your children, what are the basics, what are the essentials, what are the things you don't want to miss when it comes to the Christian faith, I think this is it. These qualities would build a strong foundation in a child's life. And as leaders of this church, we think this profile will help us as individuals, as families, as a church, stay focused on the few essential qualities that not only make up a mature disciple, but that will help us prepare for the day when we face Jesus. And today, we're going to look at the first quality, uh, following Jesus. Last week, we introduced the series. Today, we're going to look at following Jesus. Next week, the, uh, our senior pastor, Paul, is going to talk on uh, uh, glorifying Jesus seeking to glorify God. And then in the remaining weeks that we have, we're going to spend four weeks working through identity, intimacy, integrity, and influence. Now, you would think following Jesus is a given. You'd think, okay, yeah, right. I mean, we're Christians. We follow Jesus. That's pretty obvious. But unfortunately, I haven't found that to be true. Especially in the American church, it's not a given. The truth is, Christianity is often defined as attending church and being a good person. That's what most people think of when they think about the Christian faith. And often our views of Jesus are really distorted. I mean, we have some really distorted views of who Jesus is and what it means to follow him. Here's some funny, some, uh, some good pictures. Some, some of us see the, this Jesus, right? Some of us are following this Jesus. We think, hey, Jesus is my homeboy and he's my buddy. He's my friend. And so, uh, you know, he and I just kind of hang out like homeboys do. <laughs> I think that's so offensive. Uh, this is, uh, this is, the, this is a compass, we see Jesus as our compass. He's our personal compass. We just kind of use him as this thing where we say, hey, give me some direction in life, and then I'm just going to sit you back down. And I'll pick you back up when I need some direction. But really, he's just a compass in our life. Other times we see Jesus like this. What's that? Rabbit's foot. Does anybody have these anymore? Do we even have these anymore? <laughs> I think these are out of style. I don't know that anybody can get one of those. I mean, like other than your backyard. Um, we think he's a good luck charm. Some of us, we think Jesus is just this. He's a ticket. He's a ticket into heaven. And so we, we accept Jesus and we believe Jesus and we kind of say a prayer and we get baptized at some point in our life and we say, okay, I got a ticket to heaven and I got my ticket to heaven and I'm going to put it in my pocket. I'm just going to live my life the way I want. And then the day I stand before Jesus, I'll just kind of pull that ticket out of my pocket and go, hey, by the way, I, I got that ticket. That is not who Jesus is and that is not what it means to follow Jesus. They don't accurately represent what it means to, to be a Christ follower, to be a disciple. And so today we're going to talk about what does it mean to really follow Jesus. Before we go any further, I want to pray. I, I, I would love for you to pray with me. Will you pray with me? Father, I am so thankful for your love for us. I'm so thankful that you gave your one and only son, Jesus Christ, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. But I know, Lord, it's so much more than just believing in Jesus. Your word says that even the demons believe. Lord, we want to be people who follow Jesus. Would you help us as a church family follow Jesus? And even in the next 20, 30 minutes, Lord, would you please just guide our conversation this morning? Would you speak to us? Would you open our ears? Lord, I want, I want us as a church family to hear your voice. So would you speak to our hearts this morning, Jesus? It's in your name I pray. Amen. So the Bible teaches in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we'll all stand before Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for things done in the, while in the body, whether good or bad. We're all, we're all going to appear. Some? No. Just Christians? No. We're all going to appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Have you thought about that? 
Have you thought about that moment? What's that moment going to be like for you? Will you be ready for that moment? The apostle John wanted his disciples to be ready for that moment. John was one of Jesus' 12 apostles, one of the 12 followers. He was there early on in his ministry and was there throughout his whole ministry and even at the end. And the apostle John wrote two letters in the New Testament, one of, uh, 1 John and 2 John. They were back towards the, towards the back of the New Testament. And in it, in 1 John chapter, one, chapter 2, John spoke to his disciples about the moment when they stand before Jesus. He wanted them to be ready. I want you to look at this verse, 1 John 2, 28. John writes, Dear children... Dear children, continue in him, continue in Jesus, so that when Jesus, when he appears, when Jesus appears, we may be confident and unashamed before Jesus at his coming. And the implications of this passage are significant for you and me. When we stand before Jesus, we're, we're going to have a certain type of experience. Now, let me be clear here. For those who stand before Jesus who are not Christians, who've never put their faith and trust in Christ, who while here on earth, earth never, uh, as Romans 10 says, never believed in their heart and confessed Jesus as Lord, who never entered into that eternal relationship with Jesus, for those people, they won't spend eternity with Jesus. They're going to go to what the Bible talks about is hell. But others of us, those of us who are Christians, we're all going to stand before Jesus. And John is actually writing to Christians. He says, dear children, he's writing to his disciples. These are believers in Christ. And he says, for Christians, there's going to be one of two experiences when we stand before Jesus. Option A is that we will either enjoy that moment and find fulfillment and confidence when we stand before the Lord. Or option B, we will be ashamed and embarrassed, John says. I don't know about you. I prefer option A. Now, let me be clear about something. John is not talking about shame, standing before Jesus with shame, from not being a good enough person. This is not a works-based passage John's talking about. He's not talking about earning God's love or earning Jesus' approval. What he's talking about is a relational embarrassment. I'm going to show you why in just a minute. He's talking about being relationally unprepared. I want you to imagine a couple who's been married for 40 or 50 years. Some of you, some of you are familiar with this story. They've been married for 40 or 50 years, and at the end of their marriage, at the end of their life, one spouse looks the other in the eye, and they come to the sobering reality that they spent 40 or 50 years of their life never really developing a close relationship with this spouse. At some point in the relationship, they took their eyes off their spouse. They disengaged, relationally speaking. They disconnected, and life happened, and 50 years passed. And then at the end of their life, when they realized that life was really all about relationships, they, missed, they, they, they get this overwhelming feeling of missing the opportunity to have a close relationship with their spouse. This is the sense of relational embarrassment that John is hinting at in 1 John 2.28. Well, how do we avoid that experience in relationship with Jesus? It's quite simple. John actually talks about it right here in the passage. It's simple. It's not easy. It's very difficult, but it is very simple. What's the secret? Can you tell? Put that passage back up. 1 John 2.20. The, 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 the simple message is continue in him. Look at that. Dear children, don't dear children, continue in him. So that. Why? Here. Here's what's going to happen. If you continue in him, then you'll be able to stand before Jesus confident and ashamed. Well, what's that continue in him mean? It's this word here. It's the word minnow. It's the word minnow. Minnow 
is the Greek word that means to abide or to remain or to stay or to continue to or to do not depart from. And so John is saying that if we abide in Jesus or if we stay with Jesus, if we continue in Jesus, then we'll be confident and ashamed when we stand before him. John doesn't want his disciples to get in front of Jesus and realize this. I didn't pay attention to you, Jesus. At some point in my life, I, I, I disconnected relationally from you. I didn't think about you that much. I didn't focus on you with my life, Jesus. I didn't talk to you. I didn't interact with you. I didn't live for a relationship with you, Jesus. Instead, I used you as a ticket to heaven, and I just disconnected from you. Or I only turned to you in times of crisis, and when the storm subsided, then I just kind of went back to doing life, and once again, disconnected from you. And John's saying, I don't want you to have that feeling. I don't want you to have that experience when you stand before Jesus, and I don't want you to either. I would summarize John's message. I'm going to put it in my own words, 1 John 2.28, like this. John says this, stay relationally connected to Jesus here on earth. And if you do, you'll be relationally ready, relationally ready before Jesus there in heaven. And here's what I think is so neat. I think it's so fascinating. Is why, do you think, why do you think John gave his disciples this message? Why did he give his followers this message? Obviously, he cares about them. He calls them uh, his children. They were not his biological children. Children. He calls them dear children because that's what being a disciple maker is all about. It's about becoming a spiritual parent to people. And like any good parent, John wants his children in the faith, his disciples, to be ready to face Jesus. But where did that message come from? Where did John get that message? It's the same message that Jesus gave John and the 12 on the night he was arrested back in John 15. Look at this. Look in John chapter 15. Let me give you a little setup. This is the last teaching lesson Jesus gives his disciples, okay? It's the last message he has them, uh, for them before his death. And the message is simply this. It's minnow. Minnow is at the heart of Jesus' message here in John chapter 15. And as we said, the word minnow can, can be translated remain. And so as I read this text, as I read John 15, 1 through 8, I want us to count together out loud how many times I read, uh, use, the, use the word, we read the word uh, remain. So here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read through it. Every time I say the word remain, I want you to count out loud one. All right, let's practice just with one. Ready? Say one real loud. All right, here we go. Ready? I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener, Jesus says. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit. While every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me. There we go. As I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. And I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain... In me and, and I in you, you will bear much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers, and such branches are picked up and thrown in the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. How many times does Jesus use the word remain? Eight times. What do you think his message was? Remain. Listen, listen, you got to catch this. Jesus is with his disciples. He's been with most of them for almost two years. 
And here they are on the last night. They just had the last supper and Judas has left and the tension is thick. You can cut it with a knife. And they're fearful and they're confused and they've been listening to Jesus talk about this whole crucifixion and I gotta go to Jerusalem and I gotta die on the cross and they know all of the religious leaders are out to get Jesus. The, the text has already said they've tried to kill Jesus already. They've tried to get to him. They know they're going up to this garden and they know the night tonight is gonna, something's gonna happen. And in just a few hours, soldiers are gonna show up and they're gonna carry Jesus off and they're gonna try him and crucify him. This is their Jesus they've given their life to. And so they're intensely overwhelmed with emotion. And there's this storm brewing around them. And they're going to one day stand before Jesus again. They'll one day be with him in heaven. But Jesus says, listen, in the gap, when I leave and before you see me again, I have one message for you. Remain in me. Stay connected to me. Stay relationally connected to me. Focus on me. Don't take your eyes off me. Fix your eyes on me. Fix your heart on me. Get consumed with me. Study me. Follow me. Meditate on me. Learn of me. Do what I told you to do. Walk as I walk. This is Jesus' message. Menno, remain in me. Stay connected to me. Now, why was this so important to Jesus? Why? What's, what's the significance of it? What's the weight of it? I want you to look at verse 5, John 15, 5. He says right in the middle. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can do nothing. This, is, this blows my mind. If you had to pick, if you had to choose which word you think is most important in that passage, which word would you choose? Would you look at the, look at the verse? Look at the verse, okay? In this particular sentence, if you had to pick one word that you think is the most important word in, that sen- in those two sentences, what would you choose? You don't have to tell me out loud. You got, you got your word? I'm going to tell you what I think is the most important word. I could be wrong. <laughs> we'll ask Jesus one day. I think the most important word in that passage is the word if. If. Look at that. Jesus says, if you remain in me. Notice that Jesus gives two promises that are directly tied and directly linked to the word if. Promise number one is this. If we remain in Jesus and stay relationally connected to him, we will bear much fruit. That's incredible. That's an incredible promise from the words and the mouth of Jesus. The one who produces the fruit in us, Jesus, the vine, the source of life, says if we remain in him and he in us, we will produce much fruit. That's something to get excited about. That's something to believe. That's something to have faith is true. But there's a second promise directly tied to that word if, and that's this. If we don't remain in Jesus, if we don't stay relationally connected to him, we will produce what? Nothing. Two powerful promises that you and I, as Christ followers, must understand. That if we stay relationally connected to Jesus, we're going to bear much fruit. And John 15, 8 says, that much fruit will bring our Father glory. But if we don't remain in Jesus, we will produce no fruit. And I think is what John is speaking to in 1 John 2, 28. We'll stand before Jesus ashamed and relationally embarrassed because we didn't stay relationally connected to Jesus. 
apart from staying relationally connected to him, we will not produce much fruit. If is the most important word because it implies that you and I have a choice. We have a decision to make every single day. Will we stay relationally connected to Jesus? Let's go back to 1 John 2.28 again. But this time I want to read it in the message translation. And now, dear, dear children, John's writing, stay with Christ, live deeply in Christ. That's, what, that's the minnow. Stay with Christ. Live deeply in Christ. Stay focused on Christ. Don't take your eyes off Jesus. Stay relationally connected to Jesus. Be consumed with Jesus. Make your life all about Jesus. Then you'll be ready for him. You'll be relationally ready for Jesus when he appears, ready to relationally receive him with joy and with confidence, with open arms, with no cause for red-faced guilt or lame excuses when he arrives. So let me once again summarize. I think that John is telling his disciples in verse 228, and I think Jesus is telling his disciples in John 15, 5, and I think the message for you and I this morning, I think the Lord is telling us today that if we stay relationally connected to Jesus here, we're going to be ready to be, we'll be relationally ready to face him there. Now all that leads to the question, okay, well, how? That's great. All right, you've got my attention, Kevin. I'm on board. You want me to stay relationally connected to Jesus? You want me to fix my eyes on Jesus? You want me to follow Jesus? Okay, okay, how? Jesus gives us great insight in John chapter 10. He uses the analogy in John 10 of sheep following a shepherd. Just as a sheep follows his shepherd and stays relationally connected to his shepherd, we must follow Jesus. He summarizes this whole illustration in verse 27. John 10, 27 reads, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. It's a great passage for you to memorize and study. And today I'm going to show you five steps or five ways for us to follow Jesus right here in this one verse. And it begins with, number one, submitting to Jesus. And that's in your notes. Number one, submit to Jesus. Jesus says, my sheep. If you claim to follow Jesus, then you belong to Jesus. You're his. And that just as a sheep submits to his shepherd, so we submit to Jesus as the authority over every area of our lives. Calling Jesus Lord means submitting every area of your life to his leadership. I like the way the message paraphrases Luke 9, 23. I want you read this just first part here. He told them what they could expect for themselves. This is Jesus speaking. Anyone who tends to come with me, anyone, anyone who tends to follow me, come with me, follow me, has to let me lead. I'm in leadership, Jesus says. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Let me just stop right there. You're not in the driver's seat. I am. Is Jesus sitting in the driver's seat of your life? Let me tell you something. Jesus doesn't want to be your co-pilot. If Jesus is your co-pilot, you have that bumper on your, on your sticker on your car, go home and take it off. You don't want Jesus as your co-pilot. That's not good. He didn't die on the cross to ride as a passenger in your life. Declaring Jesus as Lord means that he sits on the throne of your life and he's in control of it all. Author and theologian Francis Schaeffer wrote, if Christ is not Lord of all, then he is not Lord at all. Because of what Jesus has done for you and for me and what he's done for us, we don't live for ourselves anymore. We live for Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5 goes on to say this. For Christ's love compels us. Christ's love. Romans 5, 8 says Christ's love was demonstrated by dying on the cross for us. Because he died for us, we are compelled because of the reality that he died on the cross for the, for, for, for our, for the, so we could receive forgiveness of sins. 
Because of that, we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died, meaning we don't live for ourselves anymore. That those who live should no longer live, live life for themselves, but for him who died, for them and was raised again. We live for Jesus. We don't live for ourselves anymore. This is what it means to submit to Jesus. Number two, you got to listen to Jesus. It's in your notes. Listen to Jesus. Jesus said, my sheep, in John 10, 27, he says, my sheep listen to my voice. Just as a sheep follows their shepherd by recognizing and listening to the shepherd's voice, in order to follow Jesus, you and I, you and I must learn to recognize and listen to the voice of our shepherd, Jesus. If a sheep stops listening to its shepherd, what happens? If a sheep stops listening to the voices of the shepherd, what happens? They get lost and they get themselves into dangerous situations. This is why parents want their kids, their children to listen to them. My 15-month-old little boy, Gideon, has uh, learned, to walk, uh, learned to walk recently, and so he's walking around the house. But one of the things he's doing now that he's walking is he's, he won't stop playing with the oven, right? And you know this is not good, right? He just walks up to the oven. He's always grabbing the oven, and he's playing with the oven handle. And it's like, you know, that, that, leads, to, that leads to bad things. And so we're always saying, no, Gideon, no, don't play with the oven. Don't play with the oven. Stop playing with the oven. Smack a hand. He gets crying. Well, one, you see, the other day, uh, we're cooking dinner, and, and dinner's in the oven. And sure enough, uh, Gideon makes his way to the oven. And uh, my other, uh, my daughter, Selah, who's five, says, Dad, Dad, Gideon's going to grab the oven. And so I kind of get up, and I walk over there, because I know he's totally capable of opening that oven. oven. And, and so I look at him. I said, I look at him, and I said, Gideon, no. I slap him on the hand. He starts crying. Ah, I, just, I mean, just melts, right? I just, ah. And then all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. And then my daughter, daughter my three-year-old daughter, Zoe, we've been talking a lot about how we want to get anger out of our household, and we don't want to raise our voice anymore, and how to speak in gentle tones and loving tones and not harsh tones. And my daughter, Zoe, comes up to me and says, Daddy, you're being mean to Gideon. What's happening here? What, what? I've lost total control of my household. I'm like, no. I, and so I had to try to explain to her, no, honey, I was trying to get his attention so I could protect him. He needed to make sure he heard me in order to keep him from danger. We have to listen to the voice of Jesus. We've got to learn to cultivate and recognize the voice of Jesus to keep us out of danger. If not, we're going to, we're going to struggle. So, how do, you, how, do you, how do you discern the voice of Jesus? How do you learn to listen to the voice of Jesus? you got to study his word. He speaks to us primarily through his word. Listen, Jesus is a real person. He's alive today. Jesus is alive and well as much as you and I are, much better than we are. And he wants to speak to us. And he wants to do it through his word primarily, not only, but primarily. So I want to encourage you to study the gospels. Study the, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Study what Jesus said. Study what Jesus did. Study his commands. Study his ways. Study his life. And use the SOAP study method. We have a, uh, we have a card out at the Info Hub. Uh, we've, you've heard us talk about the SOAP study method. It's a simple method to teach you how to meditate on God's word. There's a reading plan that's on it to help you get started. You can pick one up on your way out today. But the SOAP method will help you learn how to meditate on God's word. We've got to learn how to study God's word for ourselves. We've got to learn how to feed ourselves and feed on God's word. That's how... Jesus primarily will speak to us is through his word. I'm reading a book called Hearing God in Conversation. 
and it was kind of recommended to me by, uh, by someone. And so I picked up this book and been reading it, Hearing God in Conversation. Really helpful book. It's by a guy named Samuel Williamson, Hearing God in Conversation. If you want to look it up, just come ask me and I'll make sure you get, uh, uh, get pointed to it. But he says this in, 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 in his book. He says, scriptural meditation is the essential training ground for learning to recognize and hear God's voice. Now, we don't want to just listen. We've got to listen and obey. See, in our Western minds, when we listen, we listen to someone, we listen to someone say something, maybe give us some instruction, and then we stop to consider whether or not we want to obey it. But in Hebrew, it's different. Listening and obeying in Hebrew went hand in hand. It was two sides of the same coin. This, this concept comes from the Hebrew word shema. The shema is S-H-E-M-A. The shema means to listen and obey. That's why Jesus said in Luke chapter, 20, Luke chapter 11, verse 28, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Hearing and obeying go hand in hand. If we'll cultivate this pattern in our relationship with Jesus of listening and obeying, Jesus like a good shepherd, will lead us. And he will lead us in the way of everlasting. And if we learn to listen to the voice of Jesus, it's going to build a strong foundation for our lives. Look what Jesus said in Luke chapter 16, chapter 6. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for everyone who comes to me, everyone who wants to follow me, anybody who wants to be my disciple, and hears my words, anyone who listens to me, you gotta, you gotta come to me, you gotta listen to me, and then puts them into practice. Anyone who obeys, listens and obeys. I will show you what they're like. What's the result? What's the fruit of it? They're like a man building a house who dug down deep and laid a deep, strong foundation on rock. And when the flood came, when the storms came, it struck that house but could not shake it. The storm couldn't shake it because the house was well built. It had a strong foundation. But the one who hears my words and doesn't put them into practice is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. What happened to him? Well, the moment the storm hit that house, it collapsed and destruction was complete. Listen, by the time the storm hits your life, if you don't have a foundation built, it's too late. Jesus can lead you through the storm of your life. But when the storm comes, the foundation is either there or not. So when's the best time to start building a foundation? 40 years ago. When's the next best time? Today. Start building a strong foundation in your life and in your children's lives. Teach your children the Word of God. Teach them to study the Word of God. Let's be a church family who studies and meditates on God's Word. And not just, just, so, not just to study, but to listen and to obey and put things into practice. Because if we do, we'll build found, strong foundations in our personal lives, in our family, and our church will have a strong foundation on the Word of God. Number one, you've got to submit to Jesus. Number two, listen and obey. Number three, draw close to Jesus. Draw close to Jesus. A sheep is always aware of where his shepherd is. Drawing close to Jesus is all about sharing life with him and looking and listening for Jesus in every day, throughout our day, in each conversation, in each interaction, in the circumstances of our lives. A shepherd would be intimately acquainted with his sheep. Jesus wants to be intimately acquainted with you and me. You've heard me say this probably multiple times if you've heard me preach. The word for know here in John 10, 27, my sheep know me and I know my sheep. It's the word gnosko, and it's a knowledge that's grounded in personal experience. It means to be intimately acquainted with. It means that Jesus wants to have a personal, close, intimate relationship with us. He wants to share life with us. And in Matthew 28, Jesus said he'll be with us always. That's Emmanuel, Emmanuel, God with us. Jesus says, I am with you. Now, 
I think we somehow sometimes get this, gets this wrong. Jesus, when he says he's with us, he says he sees us, that Jesus sees you. Right now, let me just tell you right now, Jesus sees you. And he understands what you're going through. And he cares deeply about you. And he wants to help you. And he wants to help us in every situation, in every circumstance, in every relationship. But if you're anything like me, and I'm going to invite my friend Matt up to the stage. If you're anything like me, when you hear the phrase, Jesus is going to be with you, I think we kind of misunderstand this. So I'm going to be, I'm going to be Jesus, and Matt's uh, going to be Matt. Let's, let's just leave it at that. Um, I was thinking about asking Matt to be Jesus, but I know Matt, and I'm like, I don't, I don't, I don't think I want him to be Jesus. Uh, sorry, I'm just kidding. You ask for a volunteer and you throw them under the bus. That's what we do. Uh, I think when we hear Jesus say, I'm with you, here's what we say. We, here's what we think. Matt is living his day and I am Jesus and with him. And as he goes about his day, he hears me saying to him, I've got your back. I'm behind you all the way. But a rabbi would never follow a disciple. Disciples follow the rabbi. And so what's more, and more accurate picture of Jesus saying, I'll be with you always, is this. As Matt goes throughout his day, and he walks throughout the circumstances and the storms and the seasons of his life and the interactions with his wife and his children and his family and his workplace and his neighborhood, as he walks throughout his day, when, he, when Jesus says, I'm with you always, Jesus is saying, I will lead you. I will lead you into every circumstance and every situation, but you have to open your eyes and look for me. I'm already there. Open your eyes and look for me. Thank you, Matt. Let's give Matt a round of applause. <laughs> I love that. I threw you under the bus. Uh, Jesus isn't, when he says he's with us, he's not saying, I got your back. I'm behind you all the way. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying, open your eyes and look for me. I'm already there. Follow me into every conversation, into every circumstance. Can you imagine living like that? I want to live like that. I want us to be a church family that lives like that. I want my children to live like that. Going through your day, following Jesus in every conversation. And one of the practical and simple ways to do this is just simply through prayer. When you get out of the car and you're walking into the restaurant to meet a friend for lunch, whisper a prayer and say, Jesus, give me eyes to see you and ears to hear you. If I'm going to go into the workplace, say, Jesus, give me eyes to see you and ears to hear you. I'm going to follow you today. I'm going to follow you in this interaction. Jesus, give me eyes to see you and ears to hear you. I want to follow you. Number four, we've got to pattern our life after Jesus. If we're going to follow Jesus, we must pattern our life after him. In John 10, 27, Jesus said, my sheep listen to my voice and they follow me. I know them and they follow me. That word follow the Greek word is akalatheo. Everybody say that with me. I'm just kidding. Akalatheo. It means to line up behind. Line up behind. You line up behind Jesus. To learn of or to company or to join. A disciple would line up his life behind the rabbi's life and they would pattern their life after his. And so a mature disciple follows Jesus and patterns his or her life after him. How many of you how many of you, uh, how many of you all like Pinterest? Anybody like Pinterest? Any, any ladies like Pinterest? Okay. Guys, put your hands down. That's not cool. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. 
Just, it's okay. It's okay. Okay, so my wife likes Pinterest, and uh, my wife likes to get on Pinterest for a couple different reasons. First, she likes to get on there for uh, uh, recipes. She likes to, you know, my wife's a great cook, and uh, she's always finding good recipes on there, and she'll pull a recipe off. But she also will, uh, she likes to sew a little bit. So my wife's a pretty good, uh, is, is the word seamstress? I, I don't know. She likes to sew a little bit. And so she'll, from time to time, get on there, and she'll download a pattern. Anybody do this? Any ladies do this? So you sew, you download a pattern, you got to get a pattern, you follow a pattern to sew. And so from time to time, she'll ask me to print these off and bring these home and say, hey, will you, will you print that off? And, and so I'll bring home this pattern and be like all these pages together, and then she'll lay them out on the table at home, and she'll have to study the pattern, and she'll study it, and she'll study it, and she'll study it, and she'll study the pattern over and over and over again. Because she's experienced when she doesn't follow the pattern, she has to start over and rip out the scenes and go. So she studies the pattern very closely so that she can follow the pattern and get it right. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and throughout the rest of the New Testament, Jesus gives us a pattern for how to live life. He gives us a pattern for how to pray. He gives us a pattern for how to uh, obey. He gives us a pattern for how to study God's word. He gives us a pattern how to love and serve others. He gives us a pattern of making disciples like he did. Let's make it our goal. Make it your goal to pattern your life after your rabbi, Jesus. Okay, number five is follow in faith. So number one, you got to submit to Jesus. Number two, listen and obey him. Uh, number three, draw close to him. Number four, pattern your life after him. And number five, follow in faith. As we've said, sheep don't lead themselves. They must follow their shepherd. And they must follow the shepherd in faith. It takes faith to follow Jesus. It takes faith to follow a person we can't see with our own eyes. It takes faith to believe that even in the midst of the challenges and the circumstances and the storms of our life when things don't go, seem to be going right, it takes faith to believe that Jesus is worthy, ready, and willing to, fo to be followed. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 says this, we live by faith and not by sight. Or how about Hebrews 11.1? 1? Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. That's the challenge of the Christian faith is, is that we live by faith. We can't see with our own eyes, so we have to have faith. Verse 6 says this, it's with, without faith, it's impossible to please God. And I love this one, because anyone who comes to him, anyone who follows Jesus, anyone who wants to follow Jesus, anyone who wants to be a disciple of Jesus must believe that he exists, must have faith in him, and that he's real, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him, that it's worthy that Jesus is worthy to be followed. It takes faith to follow Jesus. And some of you, and I want to make sure I say this, I want to make sure you hear this very clearly. Because I know, I know some of your stories and what you're facing right now. Some of you are in the middle of a storm right now. And it's cloudy. And it's raining. And the wind is blowing in your face and you can't see. You can't see through the storm. You walk by faith and not by sight. You keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. And you believe that he is gonna, he's going to lead you through this storm. And I don't, listen, I don't know how the storm's going to end. I'm not going to lie to you and tell you the storm's going to end well. And it's going to end the way you want. But I'm going to tell you, he's worthy to be followed. If we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, 
as individuals, as couples, as students. If we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus as a church, if, if we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, he promises, he promises in John 15, 5, that we will bear much fruit in our lives and our church will bring him glory. That's what this series is all about. We want to be a people who follow Jesus, bear much fruit, and bring him glory.